0: Keith Thompson is a former semi-professional baseball player in France, an editorial cartoonist for Newsday, a filmmaker with a short film shown at Sundance, and a screenwriter. He writes on intelligence and military drone technology for the Huffington Post. His first novel was Once a Spy. His new novel is Twice a Spy. Thank you for joining me, Keith.
1: Rick, thanks for having me.
0: Keith, these are both really wonderful books, and you have at the core of them a very great concept. And I think you can tell us this concept without spoiling the books. So talk about what happens to America's aging spies.
1: Well, both of the books are about a spy who has Alzheimer's disease. And as a result, his colleagues view him as a security risk, and they decide to neutralize him, which is spy parlance for kill him. And he has no one to turn to but his son, the horse player, Charlie, who had always thought that dad was an old, bumbling appliance salesman, but they have to catch up and and then get, get, get running.
0: You know, at the heart of these books is a great interplay between the father and son as the son gets to know the father really for the first time. And I think that's a, a really wonderful way of creating a character arc Based on kind of lies and deception, and that speaks to the whole subject of the of a spy novel, which is all about lies and deception.
1: Professional liars. I've I've heard uh, CIA uh, clandestine service officers refer to themselves as such. Uh, it that, that's the job.
0: Now, um, a, as part of the job of your job as a writer, you have to create these professional liars, one of whom has been lying to his family for 35 years, and his mind is starting to kind of unwind. Um, Talk about creating this character uh, of uh, Drummond Clark. When did you encounter him as a writer in your writings, and how how did you start to uh, tell his story and that of his son as well?
1: Well, I'd like to say I made it up. Um, I've done that before in fiction. But in fact, uh, Drummond was based on a couple of true uh, people, uh, actual people. Um, One of them was a a, a guy I'd gone to school with uh, who spoke seven foreign languages, his dad had been a factory manager for a big American company, I think IBM, uh, like in typewriter plants in Europe uh, while, while my friend was growing up. And while my as they went from country to country, while my friend would learn the languages and immerse himself in the cultures, the dad was a very much of a xenophobe in the Archie Bunker mode. He adamantly refused to speak anything but English. He would get on the Metro in Paris and ride for two hours just to procure a six pack of Budweiser. He'd go out of his way to watch NFL games and we're talking about 1985 before there was internet like where if you wanted to watch a NFL playoff game you'd have to go to some distant bar and probably the announcers would be in Hungarian and um, tragically, this man uh, suffered early onset Alzheimer's disease and was forced into retirement and shortly thereafter at Thanksgiving. Uh, he was sitting at the head of a large family gathering at, at the table and he began speaking French. And remember, this is the Archie Bunker who never speaks anything but uh, English. And naturally his family and friends were taken aback and looking around the table, seeing the eyes wide open and the, the mouths open as well. He um, recognized the, the this confusion on their part. So he switched uh, to fluent German. Um, oops so we figured that he must have you were there when this happened i I, no, I i only heard about it but i but in in hearing about it and discussing it with my friends afterwards we figured well he must have served overseas in some sort of non-official cover uh clandestine service capacity um that archie bunker was just a cover obviously uh and it made me curious about what Uh, in fact, happens to intelligence officers when they lose their hold on secrets or when the governor uh, becomes at issue. Um, At the same time, I knew uh, another CIA uh, officer who worked at Area 51, as it's commonly called, the Lake Room test site, and he went off to work every day from the 60s uh, until he retired, and his family just thought that he was an aircraft engineer, but he was working for the CIA on secret projects, including the SR seventy one Blackbird, uh, mm-hmm. the the spy plane, and only in two thousand and seven was he able to reveal to them when the SR seventy one project was declassified and his the, the the full scope of it, what he actually did.
0: Wow, I I mean I remember building the models of the SR seventy one when I was a kid. What what did it do that we don't didn't know about till two thousand and seven?
1: Uh well, the declassification process is slow, mm-hmm. I, I guess. For one thing, I, I think that kids had diecast models of the SR seventy one well before two thousand seven. But um, I think that some of the things he was able to talk about was uh, were, I, one of my favorites is the the UFOs that people saw. The SR seventy one traveled so fast and would catch uh, maybe a. a Sun in such a way that it would flash that people mis- mistook it for uh, UFOs, and the CIA and um, the Lockheed Skunk Works who were testing it and t- testing other aircraft didn't really have any protocol for dealing with people who thought that their experimental planes were UFOs. Like this, that's it's, in, in, it's one of those 2020 hindsight things. Like you know, maybe we should have so. They just, said, they just went right along with it. They are like, oh, yeah, I guess. You know, it could be. Um, because they, 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 don't want, they didn't want people to know what they were doing. But, in fact, it's this plane that travels 2,500 miles an hour, super high, and um, was spying on our enemies.
0: And on ourselves. I guess the people over uh, whatever secrets the people who live near Area 51 had to reveal, probably not much more than a six-pack in the back of their uh, pickup truck.
1: I, I don't think that the CIA was doing any reconnaissance <laughs> on the local Nevada uh, residents.
0: Now, uh, so you heard about these two people, you know, this, these two men who had lived lives that, you know, were uh, completely at odds with what they told their families. Did their families feel kind of betrayed or did they, were they proud of what, what, the, what the parents had done?
1: Well, in the first case, the man with Alzheimer's, it's a mystery. I I don't know. uh, I I can't say for a a fact that he wasn't a a quirky uh, (laughs) IBM uh, plant manager. I I don't know where he served. I I don't know. I've never met him. I know none of the specifics. It just Mm -hmm. was sort of a compelling scenario. Um, In the second instance, uh, his family... The, the guy had trained to be a hypersonic flight specialist, so they figured he was doing something and just probably couldn't talk about it. And there were a lot of people in the vicinity who had similar jobs, so I think they had a sense. And when they found out and they went, uh, there was a, a ceremony, I believe it was at Langley at the CIA headquarters um, with the declassification when they made a statue out of one of the Black Blackbird air, aircraft. Uh, I, I think they were tremendously proud of him. and. Mm-hmm. I have written about him for the Huffington Post. His name is T D. Barnes. Um and he has a couple of daughters and I, I might get this wrong, but I think that both of them uh or at least he thinks that both of them are now in, in the clandestine service uh in some in certain some capacity. I think one of them works for the Defense Intelligence Agency. I'm not sure what the other one does. And he says it's great because family uh time is never bogged down by talk of work. no nope. <laughs>
0: Now, uh, when you decided to create uh, Drummond Clark, you also have a, a wonderful character, his son, Charlie Clark. So, talk about creating the, the father's son and, and that kind of uh, interplay we have between the, the two. And Charlie's an equally compelling character too. He's very he's a, a, a gambling genius in, in a sense, and, and a genius who might have been at Skunkworks himself had he not uh, found betting more compelling career.
1: Charlie isn't a great horse player, but he does eke out a living, which differentiates differentiates him from 99% of horse players who lose money. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways he's able to do that is he has excellent observational skills. Uh, He's smart. Um, He's able to deduce, um, to forecast a race. And he also has a system of intelligence. He talks to the grooms. He talks to the owner of the um, owner's Parking lot at the Aqueduct Racetrack uh, in in Queens, uh, New York, where he um, basically lives, uh, and he, um, he, he gathers intelligence. He he, he does to uh, uh, in, in the abstract basically what a what a clandestine service or what a spy does. And um, at some point, he just um, went a little bit off uh, track. He's the apple that fell not far from the tree but just bounced a little bit and got bruised and I think in reconnecting with his father uh, some of his talents uh, uh, rather than being used to help him pick a winning horse or more often not pick a winning horse help him survive
0: when did you start writing on military drone technology and start that kind of investigation was that part of the the research for the first novel did did, were you writing for the Huffington Post before you started writing your novel, or how, where, where where did those two come?
1: It's a weird story. I uh, have been asked like how I got to be a reporter, and I don't have any training at all, um, other than when I played baseball in high school, the local paper in Connecticut would hire a player to report on each game, and you'd go into the newspaper in your uniform after the games and write it up, and and it would appear in the paper the next day. That, That was my only reporting experience. But about three years ago, a friend of mine was involved in a venture capital startup of a magazine in Alabama, where I live, and he asked me if I would write an article. And at the time, I had just written one book, uh, Pirates of Pensacola, which was my thesis project at Stanford, uh, Mm -hmm. which St. Martin's Press published. And I said, I I don't really do that sort of stuff, you know, other than reporting on baseball when I was 16 and 17. I've never written nonfiction. And he said, well, it'd be doing me a solid, because with your one book, that'd be like some creds that would help us with, you know, the money issues or, or something. So... I wrote an article about a woman who was the proprietor of a barbecue restaurant and I really enjoyed it and I I loved writing the article and doing the interview. I'd never interviewed anybody before um, other than players on my baseball team in high school. And the magazine folded before the first issue ever came out. But another magazine bought the article, uh, uh, Portico magazine, which is a southern uh, lifestyles magazine. And I wrote a a bunch of other stories for them and uh, for some other magazines as well. I really enjoyed it. It was a nice break from the writing, and it's also a form of escapism. You can just insert yourself in any place that intrigues you, and people talk to reporters, as you probably know, uh, quite readily, and uh, I enjoyed it. And um, about three months after Doubleday had contracted me to write Once a Spy or had bought once a spy, um, I received a tip from one of my sources for the spy book uh, about a spy matter. And uh, I just happened to be talking to my litter agent on the phone that day, which I, I, I didn't do that much uh, at the time. And he called his boss, um, who was blogging for the Huffington Post, who in turn called Ariana and I, I wrote the story for them that day, and it, it worked out, and I've subsequently written about 60 more. And I, I'm no expert. I just, it's, I just do a little research, and I've just...
0: Well, I think that you cornered a very unusual and really exciting market. I, I was just reading about somebody who was trying to manufacture drones, uh, turn the, what's currently kind of a top-secret technology into a market-out-there market technology so that we can all buy our own uh, hummingbird style drones and follow or uh, follow those we wish to follow the the paparazzi i guess are really interested in this technology
1: the hummingbird has been a sensation in recent weeks and i really can't go anywhere without hearing about it but that's a 40 year old drone it's a just to for for people that don't know and in my experience that's half half the people i talk to a drone is a remotely piloted aircraft so it can be disguised as a hummingbird or the Israelis have one that's nearly as big as a 737. At least it's its wingspan, and the, these things can fly huge distances. Um, the first drone I wrote about for the Huffington Post is called the Combat, and it's like a bat, and it has bat wings, and it flies like a bat, and it has a bat cover that you put over it so that it looks like a bat pretty convincingly, and it can fly into a cave like Torabora and perch and record audio and video for. 48 hours, I think, and can be, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it can be monitored, the audio and video, by uh, military units a couple hundred miles away. So it's an incredible reconnaissance device. Um, and this is a shifting technology, and I, it's just interested me for some reason, so I've just written a bunch of stories about it.
0: Well, what's so interesting, I think, is uh, the Article I read said that the drone technology now is really still primitive. They said it's in the same state as PCs were in 1977, and he wants to see it. Just really thinks it's really going to explode if they can get clearance from the FAA to put all this stuff up in the air, so that everybody and their brother can have a, a drone. There's a there's a great Philip K. Dick uh, novel where uh, on this scene in it where. Um, a guy is driving, and and like an advertising fly kind of lands on the surface on the windshield of his car and starts broadcasting an advertisement to him, and I can see that uh, being a a real actual potential use. I
1: I don't know that that, that's... I I think that you might qualify that by saying that drone technology that is unclassified is at that stage, but the CIA and uh, the NSA tend to be a couple decades ahead, um, (laughs) as evidenced by the uh, hummingbird. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that amazes people the most about this hummingbird drone is that it existed 40 years ago. There's also a fish drone that goes in the waters and spies, and it swims very much, looks very much like a fish. For whatever reason, it's escaped the public attention, but these things were made 40 years ago. So if you the, the, the technology advances at really a head-spinning rate. It's, it just let your wildest imagination loose, and I think it's fair to assume that the uh, unmanned aerial vehicle, unmanned aerial system, aka drone technology, is is there or exceeding it.
0: Well, now one of the things that I I love in your books is um, you have a great sense of trade craft uh a, 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 of what's called trade craft, and that's the uh, the nitty gritty of how espionage works. So, and, and so, I wanted to ask you about a term I've heard many times, and I have a kind of a vague understanding of, but I'm I thinking you can explain it to us and, and much better. Is cutout? What is a cutout?
1: Well, if I want to send you a message, and I don't want people to know that we're communicating, I might find an intermediary who knows nothing about it uh, to get the message to you in some fashion. So that person is sort of cut out of the chain of communication. Um, I might ask the person to just mail an envelope for me on, at the mailbox on your block. So the person just thinks he's just mailing a letter for me. But really, you have a key to that mailbox, and it's not a real mailbox, and you'll get the message. So he, he has no idea. It's somebody who's just, who, who acts as an intermediary but is um, out of the loop.
0: So, Keith, tell us about your adventure with the uh, Bond villains. <laughs>
1: Well, this wasn't this wasn't me. This is somebody I know who um, is an American, but has an international bunch of friends who are like a uh, six guys that he went out yachting with that are like a bunch of Bond villains, and they went to another country and they came back to uh, Mobile, Alabama, and you are required to check in with Customs and Border Patrol, so they called up the CBP. and they said, well, it's us, you know, uh, it's, it's it's me, uh, Bob, uh, the captain, and I'm with my friends on the SS Bond Villain, and we've returned from uh, six days of boozing and womenizing and carousing and smoking cigars, and, uh, and here we are. Uh, so the CBP was closed, they close every day at five, and what'll happen the next day is that they'll either be expector- inspected or not, and in this case, they were not, and in about 19 and uh, 20 similar cases there's no inspection uh just because the coast guard has so little manpower uh an inspection means the coast guard comes to your boat the next day which means if you have contraband you have time to get it off uh and sometimes they'll say come to our main customs office which is across uh mobile bay this is in alabama um and this isn't I don't mean a single out Alabama, this is in all secondary ports uh in the United States. The the uh the patrol is is very porous. Uh so these ports as opposed to Houston or New York or New Orleans or Long Beach are um are very sexy targets for terrorists, and I think there's a great fear on the part of the Coast Guard and on the part of Homeland Security and on the part of anybody that has any experience in this that the next 9-11 will be waterborne. Not a particularly happy topic, but thankfully it hasn't happened yet, and thankfully the intelligence branches of these forces are very good, and they have uh, forestalled uh, attempts.
0: One of the things, again, that your book, points out is how much smaller all this stuff is, how much cheaper all this stuff is. And as this happens, it becomes less and less possible to to just put up a giant, you know, force shield. We don't have the Star Trek force shields yet, so around, <laughs> we can't put the, the cone of silence around America. And so I think it suggests that we're going to have to find a better way, whether it's more technology or better diplomacy or some uh, combination thereof,
1: well, drones could come in handy in Mobile Bay because you just like the, just the little guy that I have, the $300 version, uh, or next year's version, which doesn't break as much, really six or seven of those will be able to g- give you much better intelligence on what's coming in and, and what's going on. And if somebody is trying to offload a, w- a WMD, uh, uh, a weapon of mass destruction, off his yacht during the night b- when he knows that the Coast Guard is coming the next day, well, you'll be able to see him.
0: Uh, WMD, that's mean washing machine of mass destruction.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yes, in, in, my, in, in my novel, they have concealed the atomic demolition munitions uh, inside a washing machine because the, it looks like uh, a washing machine entered, and the weight is about the same, so it's a good concealment device.
0: I've been speaking with Keith Thompson. His first novel, it was Once a Spy. His newest novel is Twice a Spy. Thank you for joining me, Keith.
1: Thanks, Rick, for having me.